You're listening to the Live Church Livonia podcast, a show where you can hear the teachings from our weekend gatherings. You can catch the full service on our Facebook or YouTube and head over to our website if you'd like to give. Here we're real people following a real God and experiencing real life. Welcome to Life Church Livonia. Hey, Life Church, good morning. My name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and I know what you're thinking. Alex, your Christmas decorations are still. Hey, don't judge me, okay? It's before the 15th of January. I promise they'll be down soon. I'm working on it, okay? And some of you, some of you out there, you have your Christmas decorations up too, all right? Well, welcome to Life Church Livonia. <laughs> this is a beloved community of Jesus, and we like to say here at Life Church, We don't take ourselves too seriously, but we do take Jesus seriously. This Sunday is the first uh, week of our new series, The Second Act. Now, in a two-act story structure, the way that the second act works, the the first act is this place where people struggle and they fail and they come up against opposition and they don't have true victory or true defeat. It's partial and their character flaws are exposed. But in the second act, the characters grow and they address those character flaws that led them to partial victory or partial defeat in the first act. And they grow and learn to deal with themselves and become the people that find true victory at the end of the second act. And I I don't know about you, but 2020 and 2021 were a major plot twist, a major plot twist that I did not see coming. And we have been faced with hard questions major problems, rising conflicts, and deep issues, both personally and corporately. We've seen marriages fail. We've seen jobs lost. We've seen finances dry up. We've seen loved ones pass away. We've seen health all across the nation decline physically, emotionally, spiritually, and mentally. But the second act isn't just something that happens in stories. It's something that God wants for you and I. And we need a second act. We need God to intervene and help us write a story, a new part of our stories, where we deal with the character flaws that have come up over the past few years. And we begin to move forward with God to find true victory. And this series is a series on the book of Nehemiah. Because in the book of Nehemiah, God begins the second act for the people of Israel. But more on that in a second. I want to give you some examples of this idea of the second act so you can see it in some of your own favorite uh, movies and um, some of your own favorite stories. So a great example is the Harry Potter series. The whole series can actually quite neatly be cut into two acts. Act one is getting to know the world of Hogwarts. It's falling in love with Diagon Alley. It's it's practicing Wingardium Leviosa in your bedroom. You know what I'm talking about? And uh, Harry and his friends get to enjoy this world, this fantastical world of wizarding and muggles. And they face villain after villain and book after book. But there's always this sinister cloud in the distance, in the background. This cloud, this presence known as Voldemort. I'm sorry, he who should not be named. Okay, we've got to get on that. And Harry and his friends defeat villains in the first couple of books. But... Every time a new year, every year a new threat arises, and every time it's not a a full victory. And the turning point happens in the Goblet of Fire, where Voldemort is resurrected, and this mysterious, far-off, abstract evil is now revived and very much in the flesh. 
And after that, the rest of the series isn't about Hogwarts and the wizarding world and exploring it anymore. It's about defeating Voldemort. But in the process, if you've watched the movies or read the books, the characters have to wrestle with their fears. They have to wrestle with the guts of who they are. They have to address their immaturities in order to rise up to the challenge of defeating Voldemort. And at the end of the De Deathly Hallows, the second act is complete and they find true victory. A victory they thought they had won in the Sorcerer's Stone. Another great example of this is the Lion King. I've, <laughs> I've heard the Lion King called the Bambi of Africa. <laughs> because they have the same story plot structure. So you can put Bambi over this, but we're gonna use the Lion King because I like Simba better. So in the first act of the movie, Simba is promised this kingdom. He's promised this kingdom by his father, but he's this playful, snotty, kind of snide little lion. However, when the stampede happens and his father Mufasa dies, Simba blames himself and Scar steals the kingdom from Simba. And the whole second act of the movie is not about Simba inheriting a kingdom, it's about Simba becoming a lion who is worthy to be king. And in order to do that, Simba has to face his fears, and he has to face his past in order to press on towards this future. Now, I don't know your story, but I do know all of us have a first act. And sometimes we linger in that first act deep into our lives, because the first act is defined by a hope for our lives that never came to pass. Simba saw his life with his dad as inheriting the kingdom and this rich, wonderful thing they would get to do together, and that didn't happen. Harry saw his life as just attending Hogwarts and finishing and graduating and not having to deal with this threat against the world, but that didn't happen. The first act is filled with these partial victories and these partial defeats. And so I, I want to ask you this morning, where are you stuck in your first act? Maybe it's a, your marriage or a relationship that's stuck in the first act. Things are not going the way you hoped. And when things start to turn around, it doesn't last. It's just argument after argument, tension after tension, hard circumstance after hard circumstance. And no matter what you try, you seem to keep making the same mistakes over and over again. For some of us, our, we're stuck in the first act of our finances. Constantly struggling, constantly trying to meet ends meet, constantly trying to just hustle and make it. But our financial life is defined not by uh, victory, but by this constant nagging in our lives. Maybe for you, it's your parenting. I know a lot of us struggle with that. And you're struggling to figure out how to raise your kids in this new world and struggling to figure out how to help them address these challenges that are so unique to their own lives and time and day. And it's hard. And you keep making blunder after blunder or feel like you're not giving them this or that. And you're struggling to figure out how to move forward. Our personal lives aren't the only place we need a, a second act though. We need a second act corporately. What ways, and let me just ask some questions. What ways might this local body of Christ, this church, be stuck in our first act? Maybe we're stuck in old church hurts or old wounds from people of faith. Maybe corporately, are there ways we're stuck politically? I think there are. I know more than one person who's politically stuck in the first act, in bitterness and blaming and disdain for the other. 
And so I just, I'm throwing some things out there and, and I probably didn't say yours, but I just want you to think and reflect with me. Where am I stuck in the first act? Where is my life defined by my flaws and failures as opposed to a deep and true victory moving forward with Jesus? Now, God doesn't want you to stay stuck in the first act. Uh, he doesn't want you to stay stuck in old victories or old defeats. He doesn't want you to stay stuck in character flaws either. God wants to move us into his present with him and his future for us. And the question is, what's required to make the transition between the first act and the second act? I'm trying to intro this series and give you an idea of, of uh, why we feel this is important to do. One of the fun things about this series, we're doing it with the whole Life Church network. So it's not just a Life Church Livonia series. We're doing it with Southfield, with Riverside, Auburn Hills. You get the idea, right? So we're doing it as a whole group because we believe that God doesn't just want to write a second act for each of us as individuals, but for our church and our churches and us as a whole people. God wants to move us forward into a place where we grow and address the flaws in ourselves and immaturities that have created old wounds, old failures, and even old victories. And to move forward with God into something much truer and much deeper. So this series is on the book of Nehemiah, like I said earlier. And the reason it's on the book of Nehemiah is um, Nehemiah is the one that facilitates the transition between Israel's first act and Israel's second act. And he does some key things that we believe are not just isolated to that one story or incident, uh, but are principles about how we partner with God in moving forward into a second act. So we're going to read in Nehemiah 1 here, and then we're going to pick it apart a little bit. And I want you to see what causes the transition between Israel's Act 1 and Israel's Act 2. So let's read. In the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I, Nehemiah writing, was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani came from Judah. <laughs> Hanani came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. I was cupbearer to the king. So Nehemiah is setting the scene in the first chapter of the book here. He's cupbearer to a man named Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes is the current king of Persia, of the Persian Empire. He's the villain in the movie 300, if you've seen 300. Uh, but he's literally king of the entire world at this point in human history. And Nehemiah is the cupbearer to this king. Now, the cupbearer means that he tastes the king's drinks before the king gets to drink them, just to make sure none of the king's enemies have slipped any poison into the cups. So Nehemiah, that means he's part of the king's daily routine. It means he's essential to the life and work of the king of the world. And it means that Nehemiah was likely well off financially. He was probably pretty comfortable and likely lived on the palace grounds or in the palace itself to be available to the king. 
One of the other things to notice in this passage is it begins with this person named Hanani coming from Judah. Judah is, is uh, one of the kind of provinces of Israel. It's where one of the 12 tribes, the tribe of Judah, lived. And it's where the city of Jerusalem is, exists. And so Nehemiah seems really eager to hear about the city. He seems eager to hear about this remnant. And the question is, what is he talking about? <laughs> what does this mean, this remnant? And why is he so excited about Jerusalem? And it's time for a little biblical history with Alex. And this is the part of the sermon where Alex gives you a little biblical history. For all my VeggieTale friends out there, you know what I'm talking about. Okay, so uh, God gives the people of Israel the law in the book of Exodus, right? Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. He gives the people of Israel the law. Yay, the law, it's so great. And uh, the people agree that if they follow God's law, they're going to prosper in Israel. And if they don't follow God's law, they're going to be exiled from the promised land. For hundreds of years, there's this kind of up and down of they'll follow God. Woo, we're following Jesus. And then they don't follow God. And God will send a prophet. And uh, very rarely do the people repent because of the prophet. Often they alienate or kill the prophet that God sends. But God calls his people back to them, to him, and they go, yeah, we're following God, yeah, it's so great. And then he, they go back down. So for hundreds of years, Israel's really in this spiritual decline until finally it comes to a head. And God actually exiles them. <laughs> However, God, before he exiles them, tells them that he's going to show the people of Israel kindness by allowing a remnant, a small group, to return to the land of Israel uh, 70 years after the exile. So this is a little timeline here. Oh, it's a little pixelated, so you're going to have to take my word for some of these things. But here, <laughs> Cyrus is the king of Persia. He conquers the nation of Babylon. It's in Cyrus's reign that God actually sends this remnant back. And you can see that right here. Decree of Cyrus allowing the remnant to return. 538 BC. Woo! This remnant returns with a guy named Zerubbabel. Say that with me. Zerubbabel. It's a good name. So they, he returns with Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel constructs what's known as the Second Temple. The temple had gotten burned down when they got exiled. Zerubbabel helps rebuild it. And so the, at this point in the story, when Nehemiah is asking Hanani, Hey, tell me about Jerusalem. Tell me about the remnant. I can't wait to hear it. What he's talking about is this. That before, 93 years before Nehemiah is talking to Hanani, the people of Israel got to go home. And they rebuilt the temple. And it seemed like there was this spiritual revival. Over the course of 20 years, they rebuilt the temple. And it seemed like the spiritual revival was bubbling up. And for the past 71 years, Nehemiah doesn't, he's not really sure what's going on with the remnant. And so he's so excited to hear what God might be doing in the nation of Israel. His people are home. They're here. It's going to be amazing. And instead he hears the news that the city itself is in ruins. And here's the sad part. It was in ruins before the people even returned. Meaning that these people of Israel went back to Israel, built a temple, and for the past 71 years have been literally sitting in the ruins of their past. And it breaks Nehemiah's heart. How are you doing this morning? Are you sitting in the ruins of your past? The last year and a half have been really, really hard. And many of us are still living in 2020 in our minds, but... It's two years later. However, for most of us, our ruins are much older than COVID. 
We're sitting in the ruins of old relationships or relational hurt that still aches like a scar. We're sitting in the ruins of past failures we can still hardly think about because of the shame. We're sitting in the ruins of church hurts that scarred our family or our own faith. We're sitting in the ruins of death from close friends and family, especially the deaths that felt like they weren't fair. Many of us are like the remnant of Israel. We've been so hurt by our past that we just sit in the ruins. But God does not want us sitting in the ruins of the first act. He is inviting us into the second act because our story isn't over. So what happens next? How does Israel move from sitting in the ruins of their first act into the second act? Well, the story continues. I, I want to read again in verse 4. Nehemiah says, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. I was cupbearer to the king. So Nehemiah is so deeply troubled by this news of Israel sitting in their own ruins, he mourns for his people. And I bet he was hoping to hear news of their flourishing instead of news of their ruins. Maybe even a revival or spiritual renewal, but instead he hears insult to injury, only more loss, only more pain, only more destruction, and Nehemiah weeps. Now, Josh Merriweather has given a whole sermon on facing our ruins in a couple weeks, and so I'm not going to get into that, uh, but Nehemiah begins to pray, and I'm not going to get into that because Alex Sr. is talking about beginning with prayer next week. But in that prayer time, Nehemiah begins to feel that God is calling him to do something about this need he's become aware of in the world. And so it goes on to say this, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, this is Nehemiah speaking, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, one of those Hail Mary prayers in the middle of the conversation, you know what I'm saying? And he said, I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked, how long will your journey take? And when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. May I have a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the royal park, so he'll give me timber for the beams and gates, the citadel, for the city wall and residence. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of the trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king all had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. Okay, so here's what I want you to see in this. Nehemiah prays. He asks God, God, what are you doing here? And how do I, what do I do about this? There's this need that I cannot shake. It is eating my insides alive. And he prays. And in that prayer time, he feels that God is calling him to be the person to meet this need. And so he makes a plan. And then he comes to the king with that plan. He knows how long he'll be gone, what kind of prep and permits and permissions he needs, how much, how much materials he has, what he's going to need for the travel, and he makes it happen. Now, 
I want you to ask something real quick. Nehemiah in this little passage is adjusting his whole life. He's literally moving to another country. He's leaving his job for an extended period of time. And he's making all of these preparations. I don't know if he was married or not, but can you imagine just saying like, hey, sweetheart, I got to go to this other country and build something. You know what I mean? Like, this is a big change. And so I want you to ask the question, what do you think his vision for his life was? Do you think it included moving to another country, resurrecting the hopes of a broken people, battling in international politics, and becoming a construction general manager, all of which happened in the story after this? I don't think it did. If I were to guess, I guess it probably, he thought he was going to continue being the cupbearer to the king, he'd probably have a few kids, he'd live in comfort, he would enjoy his life, and he would die of old age. But when this need arose, we don't see Nehemiah simply post hashtag pray for Jerusalem and then host a little dinner party with a fundraiser to raise money for the building efforts. He doesn't do that at all. Nehemiah allows God to interrupt his life. He allows God to interrupt his life. And being interrupted stinks. Okay, let's just get that out of the way. It's not fun. But there are times it's better to be interrupted. For example, one time there's a gentleman that came to Christ our church. He got baptized. We went out to lunch afterward. And one of his friends, a mentor, came uh, to eat lunch with us. And so we're talking and we're talking about the meaning of baptism. And we're talking about, you know, the, where it is in history and the Israelite people and how it developed over time in Jewish history and biblical history. I'm, we're going on and on. I'm going on and on and on talking about all these things. And um, the, the gentleman, the, the mentor, <laughs> we'll call him Dave. Dave says, oh, you seem to like Israeli history. He's like, yeah. And then I start telling him more and he gets me riled up. I'm talking all about all the like, biblical history I know. And I said, are you interested in this stuff? He said, yeah, I have a PhD in it. <laughs> and I go, <clears throat> cool, 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 sweet. No doubt, no doubt, no doubt, no doubt, no doubt. Great. Awesome. Cool. And I was so embarrassed because here I am trying to like pour into this new guy and it's like freshly committed to Jesus and I'm trying to teach him all this stuff. And he's standing next to a guy who literally has a PhD in what I'm talking about. And I wish I would have just been interrupted in that moment to just pass the ball to this guy who was so much more knowledgeable than I am and was so humble to let me just go on and on. And there are times when it is better to be interrupted. It's better to be interrupted before we do something we shouldn't. It's better to be interrupted before we say something we're going to regret. It's better to be interrupted before we miss an opportunity that's a once in a lifetime. And Nehemiah allows God to interrupt his life. Through much prayer, through much planning, through much hard work, Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem and he rebuilds the city. And here's the crazy thing about this. You ready for this? This blew my mind. This city had literally sat in destruction at this point, oh gosh, for 160 years. And the people of Israel had literally been sitting in their own ruins for the past 70 years. And you know how long it took Nehemiah to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem? It took him 52 days. In 52 days, 70 years of waiting in ruins were restored. 
and a revival began and the people spiritually and tangibly in their world repartnered with God in doing what God wanted to do in and through them as the people of God, all because one person said yes to letting God interrupt their life. What they had been waiting 70 years for someone to come and do, Nehemiah said yes to God interrupting his life. And God did it through Nehemiah in 52 days. Nehemiah accepts this holy interruption and it launches Israel into God's second act for their story. And if you and I want to begin God's second act for us as individuals, as a church, as a nation, we have to commit to an interruptible life. We have to commit to an interruptible life. Because we, the question is not, what, God, what do I want to do with my life? And will you bless it? It's, God, what are you doing here in our time, in our world? Where are the ruins you are waiting for someone to say, me, I'll go, in order to restore? Because there are ruins, friends. There are ruins around us. Henry Blackaby is a, um, he, he's a, a curriculum writer and a pastor. He wrote a curriculum called Experiencing God. Some parts of it are a little dated, but the meat of it is just so good. And Blackaby and Experiencing God list these seven realities of following God that are totally present, not just in his curriculum, but in the book of Nehemiah and in the way God interacts with us in life. And uh, there's a couple that I'll show on the screen, but the first couple are, God is always at work around you. God was at work around Nehemiah. And God pursues, the second is God pursues a continuing love relationship with you that is both real and personal. Nehemiah knew God. Third, God invites you to become involved with him in, this, in his work. For Nehemiah, that came in the form of a need he didn't know was there. And then he couldn't get it out of his mind or his prayers. It just ate at him. He knew he, something had to be done about this. And he wanted God to use him. And God was inviting him through Hanani to come and be involved in what God was doing. Number four, God speaks by the Holy Spirit through the Bible, prayer, circumstances, and the church to reveal himself, his purposes, and his ways. So if you're wondering, God, what are you saying to me? My questions are, are you praying? Are you paying attention? And are you reading scripture? Are you looking to see what God is doing around you? And are you listening to the people of the church? And then the last three are this, and, and this is really where the interruptible life, the rubber meets the road. These are the last three realities of experiencing God in Henry's book. God's invitation for you to work with him always leads you to a crisis of belief that requires faith and action. When Nehemiah gets invited into the rebuilding of Jerusalem, he has to decide, am I going to confront the king about this? Because he could take my job over this. He could take my life over this. He's the king of the whole world. I may not come back to a, a, a life or situation that I want. I may get injured in this and not be able to work anymore. It leads him to this crisis that requires faith in God and action, and Nehemiah takes it. Number six, the reality, you must make major adjustments in your life to join God in what he's doing. And Nehemiah does. And then the last one, you come to know God by experience as you obey him and as he accomplishes his work through you. So church, here's what I want us to do. This, this idea of the second act of God doing something new, fresh, where there's true victory and true life, and we're moving forward with God's plan in his presence. It begins with this commitment 
to an interruptible life. And I want to leave you just with a couple tangible things that I'm asking all of us to do as a church in this new season. I want to begin with prayer. And I want to begin with this prayer specifically. God, show me where you are at work around me. God, show me where you are at work around me. After you pray that, immediately start looking for things only God can do. That's the second thing I want you to do. Look. Only God can convict people of sin. Where you see people feeling guilty over their sin, feeling conviction, God is on the move there. Engage with that. Where you see only God can draw people to himself. Where you see people hungering for God, wanting to read the Bible, wanting to know how to pray, wanting to know him more. God is on the move there. He's revealing to you where he's at work. Only God can bring spiritual revelation. Where you see someone going, oh, I get it. I think I understand a little bit more about God. And are looking for that spiritual revelation. God is on the move there. Only God saves us from sin. Where you see people longing for salvation, longing for righteousness, longing for justice. God is on the move there. Only God transforms and redeems hearts. Where you see people being redeemed, where you see people longing for redemption, God is on the move there. So I want you to pray. I want you to look. And when you begin to see, oh my gosh, I think God is on the move here. We got to listen. We got to ask good questions of the people that we're seeing. Hey, tell me a little bit more. What made you interested in reading the Bible? Wow, that's really heavy. Thanks for telling me that. What do you think... God, why, why is this coming up now? Why, why are you feeling the need to confess this now? Right, begin to just try to discern, Lord, what are you doing here? And then the last question is this, ask. Ask God, what do you want me to do about this? Because it's in that key step there that Nehemiah discerned, I need to go and head up this building project. God could have chosen a different way for Nehemiah to participate, but he didn't. And so I want to invite you I want to invite us as a church into this second act of what God is doing here at Life Church Livonia. And it begins with this commitment with us as a body to be interruptible. That my life, God, belongs to you. It's not what I want to do for you, but what you are already doing around me and how I can join you. Nehemiah begins with this interruptible life and in 52 days radically transforms a whole country. What could God do through us? What could God do through us? I want you to know that God is always at work around you. And if you don't know Jesus, I want you to know that he is pursuing a real and personal love relationship with you. If you don't believe in him or you're not following him as Lord, I want you to know he loves you and he is reaching out to you for a relationship where he can invite you into the purpose that comes in joining God in his work in the world. And I want you to know that he has died on the cross for your sins so that you might have life everlasting and life and life to the full. And I want to invite you, if you've never followed Jesus, to pray with me. And I want to invite you, if you're feeling the Holy Spirit move in the things I'm saying today, you're feeling that pressure in your heart, a little bit of discomfort perhaps, to join with me in prayer as we begin to ask God, show us, Lord, where you're at work. So let's pray. Father, we just ask, Lord, first we just surrender ourselves to you. We give ourselves to you. Lord, we need you so desperately. And Lord, I surrender my life to you. 
I accept your death on the cross for my sins. And I ask, Lord, that you would redeem me. I commit myself to you as Lord. And I give you permission to interrupt my life with your plan and your work. God, show me where you are at work around me. And show me how I can join you. Lord, show us is the church where you are at work around us. And show us how we can join you. We love you. We need you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you just prayed with me, I want to invite you. Reach out to us on our digital connection card, please. You're not walking this road alone. We are a beloved community here of the people of God. And we want to invite you into that community and into God's second act for your life.